I'm uh, Pastor Andrew. I'm the associate pastor here. And uh, this morning, I have the privilege of helping us all reflect a little bit on 2018 and uh, help prepare our hearts a little bit for 2019. Uh, so we're coming in for a landing on for several different things this year. And uh, today, today is the last day for a couple different things. One is uh, this is the last day we're going to be in the book of Exodus. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, no, we can't leave the book of Exodus. We've been there, so we, <laughs> we should be there for years more. Well, you know, we've, we've only been in the first two books of the Bible for two years. So, <clears throat> um, uh, but it, it is time now to uh, wrap up the book of Exodus and, uh, and move on. Uh, just a quick summary of uh, where we have been thus far. So thus far in Exodus, uh, we began uh, talking about Moses' story, how God called him, and then his big confrontation with Pharaoh where he demanded, let my people go, and God did amazing miracles. And, and finally, then comes the great escape where uh, the people of Israel uh, finally were uh, allowed to escape through the parting of the Red Sea. And, uh, and then, since then, we have been in the wilderness along with the Israelites. Some of you are thinking, yeah, we've really been in the wilderness at that Exodus thing. We, uh, um, so, uh, in the wilderness, we have discovered uh, God's vision for his people in ten words. We spent all of the fall looking at uh, the ten words. That's another way of saying the ten commandments. And uh, in the wilderness, we discovered several things. Uh, we discovered that the people of God were supposed to become uh, a holy and obedient people. And we discovered that they were supposed to become a just society that could represent God to the world. Uh, if you remember uh, earlier on in Exodus, Exodus 19, it said that the Israelites were meant to be a whole kingdom of priests. And a priest is somebody who stands between God and humanity. They explain God to humanity. They urge humanity, follow God, obey him. And then they turn to God and they represent humanity to God and say, God, please have mercy uh, on us. And they represent humanity's interest to God. The whole nation of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests so that the world would discover who God really was through the way that the Israelites behaved. They were supposed to look at the just behavior of the Israelites, how they interacted with one another. And from that, they were supposed to uh, figure out who the real God was. Uh, so we're wrapping up the book of Exodus today. We are also wrapping up a little, uh, the, the last few weeks we have been spending time talking about the tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle, uh, was that tent, uh, where the people of God could meet with God. And, uh, there was a pillar of fire. God would show up in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He would rest over the tabernacle and uh, either Moses or Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God there and then come out and uh, talk to the people about God. Well, uh, we've spent several weeks talking about the building of the tabernacle, and uh, we've discovered several things about the building of the tabernacle. We've discovered that um, uh, the building of the tabernacle, the process of building the tabernacle, was supposed to uh, make the people of God into a people of his presence. They were supposed to be the kind of people who exhibited the presence of God. What was unique and special about the Israelites was that God was with them. And the tabernacle was supposed to represent that to uh, the world. When the, uh, the, the, people, of, uh, the people around Israel uh, talked about the Israelites, they, what they were afraid about was they said oh, their, their God is with them. And, uh, and, and, and that struck fear in their heart, uh, un, unlike the other nations around them where, you know, you would plead with your gods to be with you, but you didn't really know they were with you. Uh, the people of Israel, the tabernacle was, was supposed to show that the people of God were, uh, that, that God was with his people. Uh, second thing uh, that we learned about the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, as Pastor Ben shared uh, two weeks ago, was that the process of building the tabernacle was supposed to turn 
the people of God into a generous people, a generous people. Pastor uh, Ben spent a lot of time explaining how God moved in the hearts of the people uh, so that they gave above and beyond what was asked of them. Uh, They were so eager to give. uh, And so the very process of building the tabernacle transformed them into a generous people. And uh, finally, uh, as we learned last week with Annette Bittner, our uh, pastoral intern, uh, she explained to us that the building of the tabernacle was supposed to transform the people of God into worshipers of God, that they would become people who worship the Lord. And as Annette defined for us last week, uh, that to worship God means to come into agreement with God. It, it includes singing, it includes praising, it includes all those things, uh, but primarily worshiping God means coming into agreement with him in our whole life, every area of our life. Uh, so when we're done singing songs here, we don't say, we're trying not to say, now the worship is over and now I'm going to uh, listen or now I'm going to go do things. Uh, all of that is worship uh, if it is in agreement with God. And so, uh, so, so, so we are left with this, uh, this tabernacle. Uh, but to understand the tabernacle fully, we need to pause where Scripture pauses and dive into a very strange and curious story. Uh, so the last 15 chapters in the book of Exodus are all about the building of the tabernacle. Chapters 25 through 31 are uh, Moses goes up to the mountain, and there on the mountain, uh, he meets with God, and God gives him the vision for the tabernacle. So that's those first several chapters of the story. And then uh, chapters, uh, tw- uh, sorry, 35 to the end of the book, uh, they actually build the tabernacle. So the first part, Moses gets the vision for it. Second part, they actually build it. Uh, Annette has gone over those Uh, elements of it. Pastor Ben and Pastor Steve have gone over the elements of that. But there's this strange story uh, in chapters 32 through uh, 34. Very strange story. And we're going to pause and look at this story for a little bit to try to get our minds around the significance of the tabernacle. So if you could turn with me, uh, we're going to go, we're going to drop ourselves right into the middle of it. Chapter 32. Turn with me there to chapter 32. And it's this very strange, curious uh, prayer or interaction between Moses and God, Yahweh. Very strange interaction. In chapter 32, 33, excuse me, chapter 33, I'm going to start there, chapter 33, verse 18, it says this, Then Moses said, Show me your glory. He's talking to God. And then God has a very odd response. In verse 19, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, this is where it gets strange, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Very strange response. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. So right there, just so you, uh, so we're all clear on the same page, uh, the face of God, that is a metaphor, uh, a way of describing the glory of God. So uh, when Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, you can't see my face, uh, the face and glory mean the same thing. Uh, verse 21, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And we're not talking about necessarily a literal face or a little literal back. We're talking about a metaphor, uh, the back symbolizing kind of the lesser glory, sort of the afterglow of God's glory. So God's saying, I'll let you see this little afterglow of my glory, but I'm not going to let you see my full glory in my face. It's, it's a very strange interaction, uh, but it's very important for us to understand 
if we are going to get at the significance of the tabernacle for us today. Uh, Now, on the one hand, it's not strange that God responded this way. If we look throughout scripture, there is a theme going all the way back to the beginning in which uh, the, the people of God know they don't want to look at God's face because to see the full glory of God is a death sentence. Uh, if you go all the way back to Cain and Abel, you guys remember Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother Abel and he tried to hide it. Uh, when God confronts him with this and Cain realizes he's going to be punished, uh, what he's most in despair about, it says in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I shall be hidden from your face. He recognizes that his sin has caused the face of God to be hidden from him. Uh, in other words, he's not going to get to see the glory of God anymore. And, uh, and he's in despair over that. And then it says in verse 16 of chapter 4, then Cain went away from the face of the Lord. Your version probably says the presence of the Lord. Uh, the, the word presence uh, is, is a, the Hebrew word face. Again, so that word face means glory of God. It also means the presence of God. And, uh, and so uh, Cain is, uh, and starting with Cain, all the rest of humanity has been cast from the face of God, the presence of God. So we can no longer see the face of God and, uh, and his face is turned from us. Uh, and, and this theme keeps going throughout scripture. Uh, Jacob, the patriarch, in that story we read uh, quite a while ago where, where uh, Jacob was wrestling with God or with an angel of God. It's not clear exactly what he's, who he's wrestling with, but he recognizes the next day that he had this encounter with God. And it says in chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 30, he's, he says he's, he's shocked and surprised. He marvels at the fact that he saw God and he still lived. Because like any person of the day, they would recognize if you actually see God, that's a death sentence. Uh, to actually see the glory of God. Um, when Moses first encountered God, back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, it says Moses hid his face from God um, because he, uh, he was afraid to see God. So Cain, hid his, uh, hit, Cain was hidden from God, his, the face of God. Uh, Jacob marveled that he actually got to see God and didn't die. Moses hid his face uh, and then there's this other phrase that runs through the whole Bible, and it, it says uh, when, when, when people were worshiping God, it said they would fall on their face and worship God. And that was this instinct. They knew that if God's presence were to show up, that was, that was a death sentence, and so they would fall on their face uh, so that they wouldn't... Uh, the fear was that if they would look up and actually see the face of God, they would be uh, destroyed. Um, and so... Uh, so it's a theme that goes all the way through Scripture. And then, of course, there's the, there's the terror of Mount Sinai. Um, we, some months ago, we talked about the, when the Israelites were finally all gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, and the presence of the Lord came in, in uh, thick clouds, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there was trumpet noises, and it was, it was terrifying. It says in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Uh, so there was that sense of terror from the presence of God. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's no wonder, uh, starting all the way back with, with, uh, Adam and Eve, and then, of course, Cain made it worse. But uh, we've had this sinful nature in us, this brokenness in us uh, that can't be in the presence of a holy, good, pure, and just God. Uh, And so uh, it it should be no surprise that this theme that runs throughout the whole Bible in in which uh, the face of God is hidden uh, from us. So uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Steve uh, gave us this uh, image in his message um, uh, nuclear explosion. You know, uh, I've, I've read accounts of uh, the nuclear explosions in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, at the end of World War II, and um, uh, you know, one of the, the people s- survived. One of the things they would say about it was uh, one of the things they most regretted was looking up and seeing the flash of light, uh, and it blinded most of them uh, forever. And uh, the very flash itself uh, killed them. And so, so it's actually Pastor Steve did a good job of. 
kind of giving us a sense of what the, the, the presence of God must uh, have been felt like <laughs> um, to, uh, to the Israelites. And, and of course, this shouldn't really surprise us uh, because this is, the, this is the creator of the universe. This is the one who holds everything together at his mere whim. Uh, this is the one who sustains the very existence. Our every single breath is a breath that we take at his uh, mere pleasure uh, and not because we've earned it or deserve it. So here we are, back to, uh, to Moses. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, Moses' request was really, when we think about it, then when he said, show me your glory, it was really quite brash of him. It was really quite uh, brazen, if, if you think about it. Uh, he, he knows, uh, and knows better than anybody, um, the, the, the terror of the, the full glory of God. And, uh, and yet here he makes this request, show me your, your, your glory. It really maybe wasn't one of his smartest moments. Uh, now, this is where things get odd, though. Even though there's this theme throughout, Bible, about, throughout the whole Bible uh, about the, 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 the terror of the glory of God, there is, at the same time, there's a theme throughout the Bible where we are actually commanded to seek the face of God. Very bizarre. It seems like a total contradiction. Um, uh, uh, David, in Psalm 27, uh, he's interacting with God, and, and, and God is saying to him, uh, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So David is actually receiving a command from God to seek the face of God, and David's heart is responding. He wants to seek the face of God. A little earlier in the same Psalm, David says this, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So it seems like there's this total strange contradiction between these two themes. One is you don't want to see the face of God because of its terror and its glory. And this other theme of seek the face of God. How on earth uh, do we reconcile those things? Uh, by the way, there's a little blue insert in your bulletin I want to draw your attention to. Um, at the, the bottom, there's a little square at the bottom of one side. And it says, seeking the face of God in the tabernacle and in Jesus. There's a, there's a um, uh, um, sort of a, I listed just a few. There's dozens and dozens more passages in Scripture. Uh, but if you want to, if you need some material to meditate on uh, in the new year, uh, this is a great place to start. And th- this will help you meditate on the theme of seeking the face of God. Uh, you got Old Testament, New Testament. So, uh, so anyway, what, what are we to do with um, this, uh, this apparent contradiction? And... That is where the tabernacle comes in. That is the significance and the importance of the tabernacle. Uh, you see, the tabernacle was designed specifically to give people confidence to approach the living God. Does that make sense? God makes it clear that we are not to approach him because of the terror of his holiness, and yet... He also calls us to come close to him, and the tabernacle was supposed to give the people confidence that they could approach this holy God. Every single element, every single feature of the tabernacle, inside and out, was supposed to be this very clear picture to the people of God uh, that you can approach. Now, uh, Annette last week, and Ben the week before, and Pastor Steve uh, the week before, uh, each went over uh, several different elements, so we're not going to spend time doing that uh, this morning. It's a wonderful exercise, by the way, if you're looking for uh, stuff to meditate on in the new year. Uh, the different elements of the tabernacle are a, a wonderful, it gives you a really concrete, visual, full sensory experience uh, to help you understand how we are to have confidence before God. But every element, the table of showbread, the, the lampstand, the uh, altar of incense, the, uh, behind that, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, the priest himself and all the things that he wore, the curtains, every single part of it is supposed to give us confidence 
that we can approach this living, terrifying, glorious God. You might be asking, well, okay, that's nice, but the tabernacle no longer exists. It doesn't physically exist. It was replaced uh, back in Solomon's time with a a stone temple uh, made of the same dimensions with the same uh, uh, sort of pieces and elements, uh, but that was replaced and that was destroyed uh, later and then rebuilt and then destroyed again by uh, the Romans in 72 AD. So there is no physical tabernacle anymore. There is no physical uh, temple anymore. So uh, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to have confidence in approaching this God? Well, <clears throat> uh, the answer is that uh, Jesus has replaced the tabernacle. Uh, Jesus himself in his person, if you take out this blue uh, insert once again, here's another, here's some more material for you to meditate on in the new year. Uh, we, I just took a few verses that explain and describe how Jesus has repl- in his person has replaced every element of the tabernacle. Uh, the very beginning, you know, Jesus, he's, a, he's better than Moses. He's the new lawgiver. Uh, Jesus is the law when he, claw, when he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. That's what they used to say about the law, about the Torah. They used to call it the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Jesus is the Passover uh, that, by which we are able to be freed from slavery and captivity. Jesus calls himself the manna um, that the Israelites ate in the wilderness. Jesus uh, calls himself the tabernacle or the temple. Um, Jesus is the new high priest of the temple. Um, Jesus' death opened up the curtain that separated us uh, from God. Jesus' sacrifice and blood uh, replaced all of the sacrifices of bulls and goats, uh, and and he did it once and for all. Um, And so in every way, Jesus replaces every part of the tabernacle. Uh, In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 19, it says this, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So no longer bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus gives us confidence to enter by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and just pay it, look at this first part here, guys. He, Jesus, it's his blood that gives us access. It's his body that's the curtain that gets torn in two. Uh, He becomes the priest in every way Jesus in his very person, replaces the confidence, that replaces the tabernacle so we can have confidence. It says, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So Jesus himself gives you and me confidence that 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 we can approach this holy God. The very thing that God denied to Moses, no, you can't see my face, God actually grants to us. I don't know about you, but that shocks me to the core of my being when I think about that. You, nobody gets holier than Moses, and yet we have been privileged with something that even Moses didn't get. We actually get to see the very face of God at the bottom of the blue sheet On that side, it says here, Jesus himself is the face of God. Uh, It says in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that the the very glory of God resides in the face of Jesus. And so this holy God, who we dare not approach because of his holiness and because of our own sinfulness, we actually get to approach through Jesus Christ. That is really, really important good news. But first we have to deal with an obstacle that Moses was trying to deal with in this prayer that he was praying. You see, Moses was making this request, show me your face, show me your glory, Um, it was part of this bigger back and forth between God and Moses. See, at at the time, Moses was pleading with God to not 
destroy the people of God with his glorious presence, but rather to to pardon them and then to accompany them. God had threatened to destroy the people because of their sinfulness. God had threatened to uh, not accompany them into the promised land. Uh, And Moses was pleading with him not to do these things, uh, but rather to go with them and to bless them. And uh, why, why? Why was this even happening in the first place? We have to go back a chapter to chapter 32. So if you could look with me, chapter 32. The beginning of chapter 32. When the people saw, verse 1, I'm in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, remember these first previous chapters, Moses was up on the Mount Sinai. He was receiving this vision of how to build the tabernacle. When they saw that he was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Interesting. This is just weeks after God had revealed to them, you shall have no other gods before me. This is just weeks after, and just months after they'd been delivered out of Egypt with his God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm, and the idols, the false gods of Egypt, had been smashed and destroyed by God's obvious superior power. Uh, God had even parted the Red Sea for them. And here they are saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. By the way, if you remember way back in, uh, we, at the time, I think it was, uh, it was just before Easter, we were, uh, th- these gold earrings, these came from uh, way back when the Israelites were just about to leave Egypt and God told them, plunder your Egyptian neighbors. Go to them and request of them uh, their gold and their jewelry. The Israelites went and did that. That's what this is. These are, this is the gold jewelry they had taken from the Egyptians. Verse 3, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Very, very strange. The idolatry of the golden calf. And who should know, who, who, Aaron should have known better than anybody else how wrong this was. And yet it was Aaron leading the way into idolatry. Well, this certainly prevented the Israelites uh, for quite some time from understanding the significance and the importance of the, uh, of the tabernacle. You, you know, they, they, the tabernacle is all about creating, giving the people confidence to approach God. But here are the people, they're wanting to approach God, but instead they're making an idol to approach him on their own terms. All right? Uh, and Sometimes we do the same thing. We want to approach God. We know he's holy. We, we know we need something to help us give us confidence before him. And so sometimes we create our own idols like Aaron and the Israelites did uh, in order to approach him. And on the one hand, this seems so obviously wrong, but it, I want us to pay attention to the sneakiness of the idolatry. Because on the one hand, we could, we could look at this story and say, oh, well, I would never fall into that. That's so obviously wrong, uh, what happened. Uh, I, would never, I would never get sucked into idolatry like Aaron did or like the Israelites did. And yet, if we look at this text, we see that it snuck in in a very sneaky way. All right? Uh, let's look at verse 1 here. Look at it again in Uh, It says here, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. 
Now, if any of you have ever been in charge of anyone else, uh, whether it's employees or you're a teacher or you, you've got uh, students or you've got your own, even your own kids or even you've just got one kid, if you've ever been in charge of anybody else, you know what it's like. You know that feeling of pressure and anxiety when the people you're trying to lead are not happy with things, right? Okay? And, and even if you just experience that with one other person, you know what that's like. That sense of pressure, that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense, you know, that they're, they're feeling anxious, you're feeling their anxiety, you're trying to kind of manage their anxiety, uh, and you're not really sure how, and sometimes we're tempted to kind of do whatever it takes uh, to kind of keep them satisfied and keep things going. And, uh, and so you can imagine uh, Aaron's anxiety. Uh, you know, Moses has been gone. He's been gone at this point 40 days. We haven't seen any hint of him. We don't know what's happened to him. Maybe he got killed. Uh, we saw how terrifying all that fire and lightning was. Uh, maybe he, who knows what's happened to him. And Aaron's just trying to, he's scrambling. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And sometimes we're in the same position and in just our effort to try to kind of make some sort of order out of the chaos, we're willing to resort to all kinds of things. And so the first way that Aaron opened the door to idolatry was something as simple as just fear of human opinion. Fear of human opinion. How many of us have let in idolatry simply because we're afraid of what other people think? Uh, there are whole denominations today who, because the culture has changed its view on a whole number of issues, whole denominations of churches have said, well, people don't think like this anymore. They're not letting this shape their brains anymore. So because kind of the spirit of the age has moved on, if we're going to reach these people, I guess we better move on too. And so we... Even the church has created its own golden calves simply because we are afraid of human opinion. Now, I want to move to the later, a little later in the story, in verse 22, when Moses finally comes down and he confronts Aaron. He fi finally, he confronts Aaron. In verse, uh, actually 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin. Listen to uh, um, Aaron's initial response here in verse 22. Don't be angry with me, Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who has brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Interesting. You know how prone these people are to evil. Now, on the one hand, that is a very true statement. The Bible affirms over and over and over again that we have this sinful nature in us that has do dominates us and that controls us and leads us astray. And if not for the direct intervention of God's grace, we would sin against God. And we do sin against God without the direct intervention of God's grace. And so Aaron is making a true statement. But instead of fighting this sinful nature, Aaron gives in. He just surrenders to it. How many times have you and I let in idols because we're just tired of fighting the sinful nature? Either our sinful nature or the sinful nature of the people we lead. I, I don't know how many times with kids. I mean, if you're a parent and you have kids, you know how tiring it is to fight the sinful nature in your kids, okay? Uh, how many of us have let in idols because we're just sick and tired of the fight? We've given up the fight. So Aaron, even though he makes a true statement about how prone the people are to evil, he just gives into it. He gives into it. Now let's keep reading here in verse uh, 24. So Aaron's trying to explain to Moses... So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That, that is the ultimate statement 
of passivity. Look, look, look at this thing. Now, we don't know if this is exactly what the calf looked like. There's all kinds of artist renditions. We, we don't really know exactly what it looked like. But it was obviously a calf. It was clearly a calf. It took an artist or several artists' work and effort to build this thing. Okay? It took them time. It, says, it said earlier uh, in uh, earlier verse, it said that they had, to use, they had to fashion it with a tool. That meant it took intentionality. They spent time on this thing. Okay? And Aaron's response is he threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That is unbelievable. So the third way that Aaron let in this idolatry was something as simple as his passivity. His passivity. Now, passivity is just a sort of an attitude, an approach to life where you see yourself as the victim of life. Things happen to you. Things just, uh, the, th- the bad things that go on in your life are simply because they're happening to you. Now, it's true. I mean, all of us are subject to forces that are much bigger than we are. Uh, so it's, it's and on the one hand, there is some truth to that. On the other hand, uh, there it, God expects us to take responsibility. Even the things, even when we've been given um, a, a bad deal, even when we've, uh, you know, born with several strikes against us, there's still supposed to be a sense of responsibility that we're supposed to take, especially when it comes into falling into obvious sin. And yet, so many of us approach life as just victims. These bad things are just happening to me. And that's what Aaron did here. I just threw in the gold and out came this calf. It just happened to me. All right? Now, you and I know, and that we have the hindsight of seeing, that is a ridiculous thing to say. And yet, so many times, we let in idols through our passivity. And there is a crowd of idols, isn't there? Uh, way back, we spent time on this image. Uh, this is an ancient Babylonian ziggurat, and at the top of this staircase in the ancient Near East, there would be a, a, little, uh, a little statue, an idol. And, uh, and we think today, oh, we don't have statues like that. We're not bowing down before statues and worshiping statues and looking to them. Uh, and yet, we have our own idols, don't we? Uh, we have a little joke here. With the, if <clears throat> if uh, Cherry Mond were here this morning, I'd put a little uh, Packers guy up there. But anyway... Um, uh, <clears throat> But there are real idols that often we have. Sometimes it's as, something is nationalism. Sometimes, sometimes it's money. Sometimes we idolize money. Sometimes we idolize our own health and our own safety and our own security and our welfare. Um, how, how different would our whole economy be and so many of the dilemmas we're in today if, if, uh, if Americans didn't idolize the security of, uh, of having uh, health um, and then there's those secret idols of the heart we don't even have symbols for. They're idols of love, idols of success, idols of power, idols of approval, idols of reputation, idols of control. Will 2019 be a year of passively letting in idols? Or will it be a year to seek the Lord's face? What is 2019 going to be like for you and me? Are we just through our own passivity, our own fear of human opinion, our own surrender? To, we're just tired of the fight. Are we going to let in idols? Or are we going to seek the Lord's face? Because you can't be neutral on this, guys. I'm, I'm sorry to say I, that's probably not very heartening to hear. But you and I can't be neutral in this fight over idolatry. Uh, people have said, uh, theologians have said that our hearts are idol-making factories. If left to themselves, we will churn out idol after idol. And so we, if, if we're not, if we are going to shut the door on idolatry, we need to open the door to seeking the face of God. So if we want to avoid Aaron's idolatry, of course, we need to fight. We need to fight uh, the sinful nature. We need to fight uh, our fear of human uh, opinion. We need to fight passivity. But we also need to seek the face of God. I just want to read to you just a few passages 
uh, about seeking the face of God. In Psalm 73, the, uh, the psalmist, a man named Asaph, is, uh, he, he, is, um, he is consumed with jealousy over the wicked. He sees the good things in the, wicked's li- in the lives of the wicked people around him, and he is jealous. He is envious. He wants that. He longs for that. It says he, he, he's, he's so consumed with jealousy, it even says that he is embittered in heart. And he says he feels like he's a mute beast before God, uh, that his, he's just so consumed with his jealousy. But there's a solution to his envy. In chapter, or sorry, Psalm 73, verse 17, uh, starting uh, in verse 16, actually, he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until, in verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I stood there. I understood their final destiny. When the psalmist entered into that tabernacle, when he then and he saw all the elements that were designed specifically to give him confidence before God, then he his whole perspective shifted and he saw everything in the right way. Uh, that was the power of the sanctuary for this psalmist in uh, Psalm 73. Psalm 63, a psalm of David. <clears throat> I want you to listen to some of these words. I'm going to read the New American Standard. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, I just want us to think about that idea for a minute. David was in the desert when he wrote this, and his inner life was matching the outer life of the desert. His inner life felt like a dry and weary land where there was no water. How many times have you and I been brought to that place of feeling on the inside like our lives are a dry and weary place where there is no water? So what did David do with that dryness and that weariness? Did he turn to the things that were going to give him kind of an instant uh, jump, an instant bit of happiness that were going to inject him with some energy and excitement again? No. It says here in verse 2 of Psalm 63, he entered the sanctuary. He went into the place, into that tabernacle where every little element was designed to give him confidence before God. And what did he see there when he looked around him in the, in the tabernacle? He saw the power and the glory of God. And then, verse 3, this is what he realized when he entered into the sanctuary. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. When he entered into the sanctuary, his whole perspective shifted. This inner life of feeling dry and weary, like he was in dry and weary land, suddenly he realizes the loving kindness of God is better than life. I, I don't know about you, but so often when I feel dry and weary, you know, I let my fantasy world start going and like all the things that would make me feel not dry and weary. And yet in comparison to that, what David realized was that the loving kindness is even better than that. You begin to try to imagine your, your greatest fantasy, the most amazing vacation with unlimited funds in the most wonderful place and all the most wonderful experiences happening to you. According to this passage, the loving kindness of God is better than all of that. And we've got to enter into the sanctuary to, to, to discover that. And I don't mean this physical sanctuary, and of course there's no more tabernacle left, but who did I say replace the tabernacle? Jesus. We've got to enter in to Jesus himself and seek the face of God. As uh, we read earlier in Psalm, 70, or Psalm 23, <clears throat> where it says that um, uh, David had one request, a single request, and that was to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Why? Because it was there that he could behold the beauty of the Lord. He could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Are you going to make that your prayer for 2019? Oh God, there's so many things I want, so many things I need, so many things that I'm desperate for, but God, there is one thing 
above all the others. Something that outshines everything else. One thing I want. And that is the thing I'm going to seek after. That's the thing I'm going to actually sacrifice for. That's the thing I'm going to push other things aside in order to get. That's, I'm actually going to shut the door on my passivity and my fear of human opinion and my surrender to the human uh, sinful nature. I'm going to shut the door on that and I'm, I'm, going to make, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice in order to seek this one thing that I might behold the beauty of God. I want you to just listen to me if the, if the uh, worship team could come on up um, and, uh, and get ready for our our closing song. The, the closing song here is, a, is an old hymn uh, in which um, the, 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 the thrust of the hymn is to dedicate ourselves to the Lord, to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. Uh, we're being invited in 2019 to consecrate our lives, conce- consecrate our whole inner life, our whole outer life, consecrate everything to seeking the Lord. And um, uh, as we sing through that hymn, I just invite you, and if, if, you, if it helps to stand up or move forward or, you know, fine, do that, or if it helps to grab somebody and say, please pray for me, um, then do that. Uh, but I want us just to listen as the worship, worship team gets ready here. Listen once again to Psalm 84. We read it earlier in worship. And I want us to listen to how David, or uh, sons of Korah, how they felt about God in this psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Are your heart, is your heart and your flesh crying out for the living God today? Verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young in a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. This, the psalmist is jealous of birds because birds get a nest in the little spots all around the tabernacle or the temple. He's jealous of the birds. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. That, that means the people who have left their home and have moved, begun the process of moving towards, on one of the festival days, uh, moving towards the temple. They're blessed. They pass through the valleys of Baca. They make it uh, a place of springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. If you've ever wondered, why am I not going from strength to strength? Why am I not experiencing much of the strength? It might be because your heart is not set on pilgrimage. It might be that you have not set your heart to seek after the face of God. So, of course, you're not going from strength to strength. You go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O God, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God, and look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand in that most amazing fantasy trip to the Bahamas, you can imagine. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's seek his face together.
God. God, we would rather be doorkeepers at the house of the Lord. Just get this little tiny portion at the very edge of your presence. We'd rather do that than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Lord, you are a sun and a shield. So, Lord, and you tell us to our hearts, seek my face. And so, God, we say back to you, your face, O Lord, we shall seek. O God, by your grace, now may we leave with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the fellowship of Jesus, under the all-ruling love of God the Father. In your great name. Lord, we thank you that you're a great God, a living God, a Savior. Thank you that you come among us and teach us how to live. Help us live for you, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.